0: The Apostle Paul says, it's a shame for a man to be wearing his hat. You know, it's, it's the issue there is prayer, but it's the issue of coming before the Lord and all of that. And so this issue of, and it's not so much Burgess doesn't do with this, but this issue of the world now, men wear hats in church. Don't really want to give my opinion of that. Satan loves to bring the ways of the world into the church and the women. What about the women? Oh, yeah. Well, a lot of women need to cover their heads and their faces. Oh. Better the oh. better the- I better get back on the men. I better get back on the men. Okay. John, are we on TV yet? Yeah, thank them. you. Thank you a lot. <laughs> well, thank you so much for being here. You know, I You know I say thank you every morning, but I I mean that with so much of my being that I am so thankful that at least this portion of the church considers the teaching, the ministry, the learning of the Word of God as preeminent. Someone was asking the other day, when does church begin? And typically people say 10 o'clock. Our services begin at about 8 15, 8 20 with prayer. Continue at 845 or whatever with the teaching of the word and the school of the word. Then continue at 10 o'clock with praise and worship, announcements, giving, et cetera, and then the preaching of the word. And so the teaching of the word establishes a foundation. It sets us on the ground of truth in Christ. Amen? Then the preaching of the word is that which comes forth using that which is taught To apply to specifics in our lives as the Holy Spirit gives direction to the preacher. So the preaching is, if you would, taking the word that has already been taught, that has already been understood, and taking that portion of the word that the Holy Spirit gives to the preacher and using it as directed missiles of encouragement, correction, care direction, whatever it is. And the reason I think so many churches don't mature as we should is because so many have washed away the Sunday school hour in preference to what the world does. And to me, it's a masterful stroke of Satan. And so thank you for not giving in and not being sucked in and deceived by the enemy to say that, well... It's not that important. It's crucial. It's crucial. This morning, we're going to continue our study of Christ as prophet, priest, and king. And in order to make the application in our lives, because everything that God has done in the atonement, in the incarnation, in the creation, everything that God has done and continues to do is for our benefit as those who will be the expression or the image of his glory. So in the end, ultimately, he receives the glory. But he receives the glory and the honor and the praise and the worship through the means of a people who live in a way that express this triunity of God, this Trinitarian personhood of God, this community in the heavens through the way we relate in this community upon the earth. This is the way God does it. And so it is most essential before we can speak about the church and before we can speak about ourselves to clearly as best we can as God gives it to us clearly get into the dynamics of the person of God in a general way and then get into the dynamics of each person of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, to see this interrelational role through loves, through love, so that as we see how the Father the Son and the Holy Spirit relate to one another in this community through their roles in an atmosphere of harmony and unity through love. When we see that, when we begin to understand that, when that begins to become a part of our being by the Holy Spirit's application to us, then we are motivated and empowered to image it. But if we don't understand it, we don't see it, we don't quite get the way the three persons of God relate and how this functions within this community of God, we can't be those who image that which we don't know. Amen? So that's why it's so crucial to reiterate some of the things we've already talked about in the Genesis uh, lesson a while back, and even to go now, next week, beginning next week, I think, into the three persons of God the Father's role, the Son's role, and the Spirit's role, and then to see how all three collectively and interrelatedly fulfill the grand purpose of the one being of God, so that then we can look at this and apply it to the church. And to our own lives, amen? Because when the Bible says, for we have been predestined to be conformed to the image of God's Son, remember Romans 8, 29, we can't do that. We can't evaluate that. We can't understand whether we're accomplishing that unless we have something of a pattern in front of us. You understand that. So that's where we're going today in a in a particular way specifically in relation to the Trinity. Father. What can we say? We say what the song says. How great you are. In Jesus name. So this morning we're going to talk about the persons of the Trinity collectively. And then next week, I think I'll get through this material today, we're going to begin to talk about each person of the Trinity, okay, as we move through this, just to kind of let you know where we're going. You remember when Jesus was asked in Mark 12, and it's in the other, gosp- and other two synoptic Gospels. Remember, synoptic means similar, Matthew, Mark, Luke, those are the synoptics. When somebody says the synoptics, what is that? Those are the three Gospels that are similar. You remember, a synonym is a word that is similar to a meaning. Okay, fine. When Jesus is asked, what is the greatest commandment? A lawyer comes up, Master, what's the greatest commandment? Jesus answers, and listen to the answer as he gives it in Mark 12, 28 to 31. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that he answered them well, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? You know, everybody's talking about this and do that and do that. Now, we need to listen carefully because Jesus' answer is not only to the Jews in those days and to his disciples in those days. The answer still is applicable to us today. What is the greatest of all the commandments? What are we called to as God's people preeminently and basically necessarily? What are we called to? Here it is. Jesus' answered. The most important is Hear, O Israel. Hear, O Israel. Yahweh our God, or the Lord our God, Yahweh our God. Yahweh is one, and you shall love Yahweh, your God, with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. And the second commandment. Is like unto it. In other words, an extension of it, or the outworking, or the expression of this. You shall love your neighbor. Neighbor in this context is in the church, especially, as yourself. With the same intensity and preoccupation that you are loving yourself, you are to love your neighbor. Now, by the way, this is not a commandment to love yourself. There are two commandments, love God and love neighbor. Loving yourself is just a way of telling you the preoccupation and extent to which you are to love your neighbor. Amen? So don't fall for the teaching which says we're to love ourselves. That is not what is here. There are only two commandments here. To love yourself then has to be a third commandment. Love God, love yourself, neighbor, and then love yourself. But Jesus said there's only two. I mean, that should be pretty clear to people. <clears throat> Now, in this commandment, you may know this, I'm not sure. Jesus is quoting from two scriptures. He's quoting from Deuteronomy and he's quoting from Leviticus. And in this quoting from Deuteronomy and Leviticus, Jesus is affirming the most significant truth about God. Jesus starts at the most primary foundational place. What is the greatest of all the commandments? What is our life all about? It is about responding to this Yahweh in a way that images who this God of ours is. It's all about that. And so he gets down to the fundamentals that what is the most basic truth? The most basic issue about god is not anything but one truth that yahweh our god the lord is one in his being one god one in his being who exists as three distinct divine persons among whom there is no intrinsic distinction or differentiation as to the nature of God. Now, what in the world <clears throat> did that man just say? Let's talk about it. First of all, <clears throat> Yahweh, the Lord, is one. The Hebrew word for one is Echad. You know, you know when you say Hebrew it's like German. <clears throat> it's like always your Echad. E C H A D, I think it is, isn't it? You don't have it in your notes. E-C-H-A-D. Hebrew sounds like you're always kind of clearing your throat. Like German. Echad. That word, the Lord our God is one. That word, Echad, has two distinct meanings. It can be used two ways. It can be used to say, and it does mean one and only. Unique. Listen to what Isaiah 44 6 says. Thus saith Yahweh, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me there is no God. So hear O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. What does that mean? It means that This God of Israel is the one and only God. There is no other God besides Yahweh. Therefore, that establishes the monotheistic foundation of Judaism, of Judaistic religion. Monotheism. Remember, one God. So, this is a monotheistic God we're dealing with, not a pantheon of many gods. He's only one in his being. You notice here in Isaiah 44, 6, look what he says. I am the first and the last. Where have you heard that before? Here is the God of the Old Testament saying, I am the first and the last. What does that mean? I am the alpha and the omega. Who else has said this? Jesus, astoundingly so, says the same thing about himself that the God of the Old Testament says. You see, most of what Jesus says... It's not new. Nothing actually is new. And so much of it he is quoting from the Old Testament. Our difficulty or loss here is that we don't know he's quoting from the Old Testament when he's saying so many of these things. He's simply drawing on what has already been said about the person and the work of this great Yahweh of Israel. And so he's proclaiming, I am Israel's Yahweh. I am the Lord. So first of all what does Echad mean? It means one and only. You got that? I'm not going to go into all the details. We went into that in other classes. Secondly it also is a plurality of unity. It is a collective noun. A collective noun means it is a singular noun which has plural manifestations or implications. I've said this before. The Navy is. How many people in the Navy? How many a million 300,000 people in the Navy and he says 300,000 people in the Navy but look what we do we don't say the Navy are the Navy is and so it's a noun which is singular but it gathers up a plurality into a way that the Navy is in that word means a unity so there is a navy that is such working in such way that it is one so the word echad means a plurality in unity that means there's more than one person in the godhead our god is one you remember where you see in genesis 224 what does it say the lord has created man and woman put them together remember and then he says for this reason The husband shall leave his mom and them, and what? Cleave to his wife. Why? Because the two shall become one flesh. Two becoming one. And so you see in the marriage relationship a manifestation at that level of the triunity or the plurality of God, where a husband and wife... Two persons coming together and living together, hopefully in such unity, but being bond- bounded, bound, by, being created by the Holy Spirit into a unit is said to be one. Husbands and wives, God sees us as one who are to portray in the way we relate and walk together, we are to portray the reality of the plurality of the persons of God. So this means that each person of God, Get this straight. Each person of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, each person of God shares or has the very same nature, the very same essence or substance, the very same attributes, the very same knowledge, the very same will, the very same purpose, the very same power. That means this, that as to the nature, the intrinsic personhood of God Himself, each person shares fully, in each person is fully manifested the entirety of the nature of this God. There is not an aspect or an ounce of anything in any of the three persons that is not also in the others or is withheld to any of the persons. Do we get that? Because sometimes if we're not careful we may think Jesus really is. Or the Holy Spirit more. And that's one of the problems that came out of the charismatic movement. They began to what? Elevate the ministry and the person of the Holy Spirit above And that's treason. That's heresy. There is no such thing. There is an absolute equality of personhood among the three persons of God. Get it right. Why? Because all of this that we're going to be saying in the next few weeks is so impacting and has to be manifested in the way we relate to one another if we're going to image the truth about this God who is one. There is absolute equality as to the personhood. We see that in Galatians 3.28. You saw that. You know what Galatians 3.28. There is neither Jew nor Greek or whatever. Why? Because All are one in Christ, male, female, whatever. All are one. In other words, there is absolute equality in Christ. Why? Because in order to be in Christ, to be manifesting the personhood of God, we must understand that we are all as to our status in Christ, our acceptability, the way we are loved, the way we are received, we are one equality. Why? Because there is an absolute equality among the persons of God. Do we get that? It's essential to get that. So what does that mean? It means that each person of God has existed eternally. And it means this. And and understand the way I'm going to say this. I I don't know if it's in your notes. For God to be God He must exist as three equal persons, each sharing the fullness of the same nature, essence, power, attributes, uh, uh, will, knowledge, etc. This means that each person of God is fully God in himself, but not by himself. The Father is fully God in Himself, but not by Himself. The Son is fully God, what? In Himself, but not by Himself. The Spirit is fully God, what? In Himself, but not by Himself. Now, who in the world could have come up with a theology like this? It doesn't make sense. It cannot be understood. All it can be done is to be spoken about and experienced. But it cannot be rationally or logically concluded. So what does that say? Any theology or philosophy that is created by the mind of man can be logically and rationally explained by man. But when you get a philosophy or a theology that cannot be explained by man, it's not from man. This is the divine truth about God. And this is the truth that God desires to portray through us. Why? Because in this truth... Of three persons in the one being of God relating in a relational love through respective roles, this is where the holy glory of God is manifested and displayed at its essence. We say the glory of God, the glory of God. What is the glory of God? This is it. This is where the glory fire emanates, where it originates, and out of which, you know, it, it goes into all of the universe. And God has set that truth in us. This is why it is so profoundly significant and so dastardly dangerous how we walk. How we walk. Because our walk will be indicative of the person of God. So when Paul, in three chapters of Ephesians, explains something about the church, and we'll get into that later, he starts chapter 4 and he says, Therefore, I, a prisoner of the Lord, exhort you, please, in view of what God, who he is and what he's done, please walk in a manner worthy of the gospel of the calling that Jesus Christ has given to you. I messed it up a little bit, but you'll see it there. Of the glory of God. And what is that calling? That we would be individually and collectively imaging this truth of the three persons of God. So how does this work? How does this community function? Because you see, we can't just say it's a community. It's a community that functions and because it is a functional community, we must know at least the little bit that God has given to us. We know a little bit about this. And so we can talk about and understand what God has given us to understand. Now, beyond that, we can't go because God has hidden it. So all we know is a minuscule amount or minuscule revelation concerning the way God functions, the way this community interacts. In the one being of God. So let's talk about the divine roles. This distinction of persons, what? That there is the Father, that there is the Son, and that there is the Spirit. Distinct persons, distinct divine persons. This distinction of persons is revealed in Jesus' command, remember? In Matthew 28 19. What does he say? After saying all authority, what does he say? He gives a command. Go into all the world teaching and what? Baptizing all these disciples. How? In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. He puts the word the before each person's title or name. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We should never say baptizing in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's wrong. Because you see, in saying the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, Jesus is saying there are three distinct divine persons, and we need to see this. And each one is intricately involved in this process of being baptized. Had he just said, in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we could construe that. It could be construed as one person having three titles. Peter Davidson. Husband, dad, grandfather, pastor. How many people are we talking about? One who has four titles. We don't say Peter, Davidson, the, you know, whatever. If we want to talk about four people, then we say the pastor, the father, whatever. There must be that distinction. And Jesus makes that, that distinction in the baptism. I mean, in this statement about being baptized. This means that God is God, as I said, only God is God only as He simultaneously is the Father, is the Son, and is the Holy Spirit. This is why Allah is not God. Don't fall for the deception that those who deny the person of God, the Bible says, it is the fool who says there is no God. And specifically that Yahweh is not God. You're a fool. You see they're not Atheist, there's no such thing as atheist. Someone says he's an atheist, I'll tell you right face. You're not. And if someone says they're an atheist, you don't ever hear me say, Joe Blow says, Joe Blow's an atheist. I'm not going to do that because he's not an atheist. I will say Joe Blow says he's an atheist or believes he's an atheist. But I will not say he is. Why? Because I deny the Word of God which says everybody has the knowledge of God in them. Romans 1, 19 and 20. Say, there's no such thing as an atheist. And if you think there is, then you call God a liar. You see what I'm saying? Let's be accurate and bold in our conversation with the world. Let's not fall for this deception and these lies. Amen? Amen. Let's be strong in the Lord. Let's do pushback with the Word of God in love, not in an antagonistic and nasty way. So, there is no such thing as Allah, as God. Why? And I've said it a hundred times. Why is, not, why is it impossible for God to be Allah, Allah to be God? Because he is a single person God. A single person God cannot give himself for our salvation. He can't do it. He can't kill himself. He can't give himself for our fellowship on a personal basis because he's a single person. But God, Yahweh, can redeem us by the Father's will through the Son's sacrifice applied by the Holy Spirit who lives in us. Amen? See, that's how it works. That's why there has to be a trinity. There can't be any other way. There can't be any other way. So when somebody says about Allah, no, it's not true. It can't be true. Just remember that statement in 1 John 4, 10, God is love. There it is right there. A single person can't love. You have to have love going out from you to someone and being returned. There has to be at least two or more. So this means, again, that the father is the father as to his relationship to the son. Make sure we see this. You see, fatherhood here, in godly terms, it has nothing to do with, what do you call it, creating children. This is not a biological statement. That's where a lot of people go on. Father, well, you know, there was a time when he wasn't born, therefore. No, this is not a biological statement. The father is father in relation to the son. The son is the only begotten. It is a relational statement. Do we see it? I know that when we speak earthly, when they say I'm a father, that means that there was a biological activity that created and resulted in my daughter. Amen? Amen? But when the Bible says of the father, he is father, not of earthly fathers. And when it talks about the son in relation to the father as the only begotten, again, it's not a biological natural term. It is a relational term. Do we see that? Because a lot of Christians have stumbled over this over the years and have created alternate theologies because they didn't get this. So, the Father is the Father how? As to His relationship to the Son. The Son is the Son as to His relationship to the Father. And the Spirit <coughs> is the Spirit as to His relationship to the Father and to the Son. So, you begin to see, there the begins to look, be revealed here a distinction. Not only of the persons, but now a distinction of the way they function, of their roles with one another. Because if the Father is the Father to the Son, that means He acts differently or has different roles and responsibilities than the Son does. That the Son has responsibilities that are somewhat distinct from the Father. And that the Spirit has roles and distinction uh, uh, what do you call it? Called whatever I was saying, different from the Father and the Son, but that all three in the role of any one is involved. So one of the persons of the Trinity is taking a lead role in a particular aspect of God's work, but as one takes the lead role, the other two are also and always involved. There is no such thing as individual roles. There is an interconnection of all roles with one role taking the lead and the other two roles involved. So, there's no such thing as unilateral activity in God. It's not the Father doing something and the Son and the Spirit are sitting over there waiting for it to be done. And now the sons on the earth redeeming man and the Father and the Holy Spirit are kind of waiting for that to be done and etc. What the Son does, the Father and the Spirit are involved with. What the Father does, the Son and the Spirit are involved with. What the Spirit does, the what? Son and the Father. You get it. If I have not said it absolutely correctly, you understand that. Now, what does that mean about us? Well, you're beginning to see how this applies to us in our relationship, in our ministries, in our work, in our function in the church and in a marriage. Because we are here to be exemplifying, imaging God. So as we talk about this, ask the Holy Spirit, begin to show me how this applies to me. And I hope when we get into some of the things about the church, we will remember these things. We don't have to reteach them, although it's not a burden to me to do that. I could teach this five times a day and be fine with it. Because it is so refreshing to hear the truth. So, this this relationship of the Father, Son, and Spirit, remember, is obviously clouded or veiled in the Old Testament and is not brought into the full light of revelation until the incarnation. Remember that. Now, the, the question of how do the persons of God relate as one? How do they relate? Well, Jesus gives us an answer in his answer by giving the command, You shall love. How do they relate? Well, the first thing is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one, and you shall, what? Love. Why? Because in the oneness of God, in this community of persons, these three persons relate in a relational community, in an atmosphere, if you would, or within a context of what? Love. So when the Bible talks about God's love or the love of God, do not think about the love of God or God's love as pertaining to us, but as pertaining to that love which exists in God among the three persons of God. The love of God or God's love has to do only with the way the Father loves the Son. The Son loves the Father. The Spirit loves the Son. And the Father, the Son loves the Spirit. And, and the, you know that interrelatedness, that's what the love of God is all about. Because often if we're not careful, we think of something like the love of God and God's love as pertaining to us primarily, and we're just trying to figure out something among ourselves. It has to do with God Himself. God has bestowed upon us <clears throat> and has set within us the very same love that he has within himself among these three persons, he has given it to us. And now we are sharing in that communal love that God is experiencing forever within himself. Do we get this? Do you understand this? Take notes on it. Listen to it. Get it. Ask God to apply it. This is my biggest need to be having God to conform me into the loving relationship Within himself as brought to me by the Holy Spirit through the death and resurrection of his son. That's what I'm being conformed into. That community of relational love through as expressed through distinct roles. With this command, Jesus is telling us that our love for one another is to be reflective, imaging. Remember the image that our love for one another is to be reflecting the love that the three persons of God have for one another. So when we're not loving one another, what are we saying? We are saying that the persons of God are jealous or impatient or angry or whatever. Hating. That's what we're saying. When we are not actively loving one another, for whatever reason, whatever happened, I don't care what happened in the essence of obedience to God. Obedience to God is the one and only ground on which we are called to stand. Period. Period. And what is that obedience? That we should love one another as our God has loved us. And how has he loved us? With the same love that exists among these three persons. Not to do it is to say and to declare and to affirm. This is how the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit relate to one another. And so, if there's anything... <coughs> If there's anything within the fellowship of your heart and your relationship with another believer that is not within the context of love, you need to stop it. You need to stop it and get it straight by the Spirit. But how is the love within the divine community manifested? How is it manifested? How does it function specifically? Through the activity of respective relational roles. God's love is expressed in a relational community through individual roles of the persons of God. We said that there is no distinction of persons as to their intrinsic nature. Remember that? There is none. You can't point out the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit as to the intrinsic nature. Goodness. Mercy, kindness, power, knowledge, eternality, essence. Which one are we talking about? All three. Well, what distinguishes them? What distinguishes them is how they relate. Or what distinguishes each is his particular role within the community of the divine person of God. How do we know the Father? Because he has a particular role. How do we know the Son? He has a role. How do we know the Spirit? He has a role. And within that context of those roles, as they come together, they come together in love. And they function in love. And they manifest the love of God. And it's these respective roles that we're going to begin to talk about. We see that very quickly. I'm not going to go through this long. In Genesis, in the creation account in chapter 1, verse 1, the Father's role is in view. Verse 2, the Spirit's role is in view. And verse 3, the Son's role is in view. All three are right there. Right there. Now, it's not clear until the incarnation. Then you remember Genesis 1.26, us and our. There's a plurality in God. So, with these plural pronouns, Yahweh is saying that each Even though each person of God exercises a particular role, each person is always involved in the role of the others. Did we get it? Although each person of God exercises a particular role, this is my role, this is your role, this is your role. Each one exercises a particular role, the other two are involved in the role of that one. So, there is a collective role here a collectiveness such that we have the harmony and the unity within God so as he can be said to be one. You see, there is no such thing as independent activity within God. You get saved, oh, I don't need the church. I'm I'm fine, just Jesus and me. No. It is a denial of the community relationally the role-playing activity of God. No such thing as independent activity within God. Everything is a cooperative, interdependent activity motivated and carried out in love. Okay? Everything. The Father's eternal purpose for our salvation is accomplished through the judgment of our sin in his Son, which is applied to us by the Spirit. Correct? That's what Ephesians 1, 3 through 14 tells us. This means that all three persons are involved in the role of any one of the persons of God, which shows that the community of God is a relational community in which each person loves, respects, and serves the common purpose of God. Now, do you see where it's getting tough for us? Loves, respects, and serves. The common purpose of the one being of God. Therefore, there is a unity. There is a commonality. A single purpose that is accomplished through these three distinct roles. And finally, which we'll see next week, this unity of roles, this oneness of roles, even though they are distinct, this oneness of roles is carried out within a context of authority and submission among the persons of God. And this is where you get leaders and those who follow. This is where you get leading and submission. This is where you begin to get the real issue of how the church and how husbands and wives and how we are to relate through the context of roles being carried out in love within of an authority, submission, structure, amen? So you come back next week, bring everybody else with you, and let's talk about the roles of each person of God. Thank you so much.